this segment, we're going to talk about fear and the role it plays in the awakening process, what it is, how we can use it, yeah, and what there's not to be afraid of. The title of the chapter is Run, the opening quote. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not popular. C.G. Jung, Psychoanalyst. One of the things I've been interested in from the beginning of our conversation is your view of emotion, Sandra says. The idea of emotion being linked to drama and it basically being a distraction from what's really going on. I nod. So I was wondering about emotional qualities like compassion, humility, or patience. Where do those fit in from the perspective you have now? What are they? My first instinct is that they don't exist because they're human emotions and I don't feel humane anymore. She raises an eyebrow, not human, but what then? Are you stone, elemental? Am I stoned, I laugh, like did I just smoke a joint? Not stone, stone, like an element, star, or stone. Or are you a vague space of potential? I'm just aware, I say, conscious. Just consciousness? Consciousness and energy, that's it. So when you look out there, she gestures to the busy street outside, what do you see? Do you see the cars, or do you go beyond the objects to the movement everything is making around? I stare out the window. It looks like a screen. I know it's completely illusory, I say. Can you cut through the screen? Of course. And if I do, it's the emptiness I go to when I think. The same thing I saw when the sky collapsed, when Maya revealed herself. Behind all of that, I point out the window again, is emptiness. What about those moments you've talked about, like your dog approaching you on the street, she says. The sparkling? Yes. What's that, then? In the nothingness behind the screen, is there still light, she asks. That's all energy within Maya, I say. But do you think energy has a form, like water or something, she asks. Yes. And I see that form in the patterns of the universe, and sometimes visually, like the day that I found Gumbo. That's my dog. What about your other senses? Hearing or taste? Do you still taste? I still enjoy the sensory world very much. I still enjoy sex, food, and alcohol. I like all of those things, because what else is there to like when you no longer feel a connection to the false self? I'm still here, and I'll be staying here, in this world, for a while. It's going to get very boring if I don't at least enjoy my sensory experience. Right now, though, I'm very happy with my boredom. But that's what I'm wondering, she says. That's my original question. Why are you here today, now, in this altered state? In the grand scheme of things, I'm here for this project. That's why I'm here. In my opinion, I'm here because I have a voice for something that I don't understand yet, and for something that I've been trying to look for since I can remember. I've always looked for answers and truth. For me, I was always searching for enlightenment. I wanted to really be awake and aware. That was always my goal, and I never thought I would find it, ever. So in a way, I gave up looking, at least on the outside. But in that giving up, I started digging deeper on the inside. And look what I found. <laughs> I laugh. Nothingness. But in that nothingness, I know my true self, and I see my false self. The false self is me, 
the character, the person you see here in front of you. I see him, too, but the true self and the false self are two separate things. Connected, somehow, she says. Sharing bodies, if you will, if that makes sense. I don't feel I control who you see, the Jason you know. I have no control over what he does and what goes on. It's really like I'm watching everything unfold, but the control of how that happens is with my true self. That's where I can influence things by having scope of vision and changing my actions mentally based on that. So, the Jason I see is an interaction of my dream and of you activating your false self on the edge of my dream, Sandra asks. Well, yeah, if you're even here, we both laugh. <clears throat> but we don't know for sure, do we? I ask. I'm really having fun with this now. Um, we really don't. I'm just aware of what's going on around me. That's the funny thing about waking up. It's nothing, which is exactly the opposite of Maya, which is our obsession with everything. And that everything is what distracts you from the nothingness, which is truth. Maya and attachment to Maya. It's the source of depression, anxiety, and suffering. Say that again? For some reason, we're both really laughing at this point. Um, that's really important, but say it again. Can you even say it again, she says? I don't know. Sometimes this shit just comes out of me. I was just kind of like, whoa, wait a minute. I missed a step there, says Sandra. Let me try. I swallow. Where I am, there is nothing. She nods. But human obsession is about everything except that nothingness. And the everything humans are so concerned with is only layers of Maya. Distraction from the nothingness that is actual existence. Suffering, trauma, all of these things take place in the layers of distraction of Maya. This is even more proof that none of it is real because there's nothing left in the garage that was my storage space and that was your notebook. Any part of my old self that I could connect to, relate to, bond with, or reflect on is now gone. Gone. Are you saying suffering and trauma are illusions, she asks? Yes, in the same sense that everything is an illusion. You know, she says, the way you describe the state you've been in with the revelation of Maya and everything falling away as being alone on a rock hurtling through space, it isn't a very attractive vision. It's not very attractive, Sandra, that's the point. It's not very attractive at all, but it's the truth. So what I keep coming back to is, why wake up? If you can master the dream, and it's a better dream than hurtling through space alone, why leave it, she asks. One of my favorite writers, Jed McKenna, asks himself the same question. He says what most people who seek enlightenment really want is to just be awake within the false reality. You can have a good time there, but when you get this far in the process of awakening, there's nothing, and there's no going back either. I wouldn't want it any other way myself. That's why I ask at the beginning of my work with students, what do you want? Now that I'm going through this process myself, when someone comes to me for coaching, I can know from them, I can feel it in them, whether they just want to be a bit more awake in their own life or if they want to be removed from it and enlightened. I laugh again. Enlightened, or whatever you want to call it, I hate that word because of the stigma around it, the false definition People think enlightenment is a union with God, with everything, the universe, the world, and all humanity, but that's simply not true. 
All of those things exist within you as emotional constructs of Maya. Everything about that definition of enlightenment is not of the true self. Enlightenment is a full removal of the veil that is Maya, not a new direction to explore within it. There's this great novel by Milan Kundera called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And every time you say enlightenment, that's what I get a sense of. An incredible freedom of just being, says Sandra. And that's exactly where you end up. If you're not afraid, she says quickly. I imagine there's a huge fear that comes with taking a decision to walk into the nothingness of freedom. Fear stops you from all sorts of things, I say. That's just one of Maya's biggest fucking fish hooks. Like, rawr, she just puts it in you. Fear, like a grappling hook. She's always got you with fear. How do you unhook? How do you stop being afraid, Sandra asks. I've always run at it, my whole life. When I was afraid of something, I questioned why I was afraid of it, and then I made myself do it, run at it, towards it screaming and wielding a knife, that knife being your mind, even going to India to start studying yoga the first time when I was 23. I've never liked flying. It feels unnatural being hurtled through space in an aluminum tube. With a bunch of people you don't know, she adds. Exactly. 30,000 feet above the earth, fighting its gravitational pull, like, hey, what are we doing up here? It's always felt unnatural. When I started looking for places to do my first yoga course, the one that I connected with the most was actually the one that was the farthest away from me. That's another one of the reasons I chose it. I had to spend 22 hours in the air just to get there. Where was it, she asks. Very deep in the south of India, the most southern tip. And at the time, I was living in San Francisco. So San Francisco, Seoul, Seoul to Bangkok, Bangkok to Chennai, and then Chennai to Trivandrum. 22 hours in the air, and I thought, okay, let's do it. You're afraid of flying, fucking go for it. What happened? Nothing. That's how you confront fear. And that's also how you have to confront life. Death needs to be present in your face like a ticking clock. Otherwise, what's your motivation to do anything? There's always tomorrow, no? But actually, all of this could be over tomorrow. My fear of flying was connected to dying and death, as with most people who are afraid of flying. It's because they don't want to die, because then the ego is gone. So I confronted that fear and the others that came up along the way. That's what you have to do with fear. That's the only way to deal with it. Pick up the knife and run at it. Run. Now, we have a little break. So take a deep breath. And then we continue. Because that was a good point to stop, of course. But there's a bit more of an addition to the chapter. So... I'm wondering, Sandra says, how to take people from the idea of fear as terrifying limitation into the idea of the potential fun that you can have with it. If people really knew what enlightenment was, I'm not sure they would want it at all, I laugh. They would be a lot more interested in having fun right, right here, right now. Being awake in the false reality, she asks. I nod. It's totally possible, and it could be fun, right, she asks. So how do you take people from a fear of losing what they have into an understanding of the freedom that you gain by losing your previous confinement? For example, when people lose their jobs or finally get out of a destructive relationship, they don't usually run about saying, oh, great, I'm free. No, I add. They usually jump straight back into something similar. They go into a panic, she says. Oh, my God, now what? I don't want to deal with this. So how do you take them from that fear of freedom to seeing the fun of freedom? the potential you have to create whatever you want. It's very individual, and it's something I like to work with one-on-one -on -one with my students. 
I think there is a line, Sandra says. I think fear and freedom border each other. Yes, but the thing is, if you cross it, you fall back. I'm just as guilty. It happened to me a lot. I'm not afraid of anything anymore, but I used to be. And crossing that line and always falling back again used to happen all the time as a result, even with opening my business. I was afraid that if I became completely self-employed, I would be bound to an overhead of rent, insurance, staff, and I might not make it. But I went ahead and did it. Anyway, what was the worst thing that could happen? There is no worst thing that could happen because I'm going to die. And who cares if I die in debt or not? I don't care about these things anymore. I really don't, I laugh. I suppose, as I just turned 40, this could also be my version of a midlife crisis. And now she laughs. But taking all of the spirituality and awaking process out of what's happening, or out of what I'm saying, it could simply be that I'm done doing things that don't serve me. Maybe a midlife crisis is really an opportunity to come back to the idea of what it is you want to do here, she suggests. Yeah, what the fuck do you want, I say. Why are you here, she adds, right? So she looks out the window at the busy roundabout, quiet for a moment. And maybe that question echoes through our lives, you know. We come up with some notion of what we're going to do with our life, and then we forget. And we know somewhere that we've forgotten. So we spend the rest of our lives trying to remember what it was we wanted in the first place. Or you can just sake off all the bullshit around you. That's what I'm trying to do with the students on my course. They don't know it yet, but I'm going to share this experience with them soon. I haven't decided when, but I'm going to throw it at them and see how it goes over. I smile at the thought. Some of them are slowly becoming aware of where I'm at and what's going on. We have an email thread that we share where we talk to each other. One of my students has completely removed herself from all social media, so we have to use email, and I respect that. So we're going old school. Sandra smiles. Email is not so old school. I know, but now it is, and we're older, so it's just school, I guess. Another laugh from both of us. But every now and then, I read things that are happening to them, and it confirms that teaching a course like this is helping me find the right voice to describe this process. And that's what I want to do. I want to work with people in groups, one-on-one, -on -one, whatever, and share this process. Not because I want to wake them up, but because I want them to fucking chill out and enjoy their lives. Life is so brief and so unimportant in the end. If you don't enjoy it, it's really nothing at all. By running towards your fears, you're confronting the ego head-on. If people can force themselves to do it just once, they can begin the process. It takes one huge leap or act to show the universe that you're ready for change to begin.